Hey ghost goblins and everyone in between, welcome back to the Green Sticker Club. I'm Theo. And I'm Ezra, and today we are talking about Candyman, the 1992 film directed by Bernard Rose. Which, um, just so everybody knows, Ezra went through a painstaking process to figure out which movie we would be doing first. Unnecessarily long, really. I am, I'm being transparent here, I'm probably going to do that for every future episode. Send help. No, no, no help will be given. But now let's get into it. So yeah, Candyman, uh, Clive Barker adaptation of the short story The Forbidden, uh, starring Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen, directed by Bernard Rose, uh, score by Philip Glass. Trigger warning for animal violence, there is doggy death in this movie. It is very quick, uh, blink and you miss it kind of thing, but it can be upsetting for some viewers. I only had to close my eyes for like five seconds. So, yeah, the movie opens up with this very beautiful overhead shot uh, of the streets of Chicago with, you know, the haunting Philip Glass score. A very, very simple score. Almost Phantom of the Opera-esque. I was going to say that. It's very Phantom of the Opera-esque. Also, speaking of the beginning of this movie, if you are somebody who gets motion sick, I do suggest not staring at the screen. Uh, Only I did get a little nauseous there <laughs> but yes the, the the something i want to talk about real quick is the score because it has some very interesting parallels with phantom of the opera being you know only only three instruments using the whole score an organ a piano and some choir backing because the movie itself has some story parallels to phantom of the opera you could definitely notice them um i also noticed the score i think because i was a choir kid we sang phantom way more than i would have liked us to. Uh, not saying it's a bad musical or bad music in general, just gets redundant after a while. And then, you know, right after this um, opening you have, you have a short Tony Todd Candyman monologue. And, you know, even when he's saying the most horrific shit, he has a voice that can melt butter. He says something along the lines of, what is blood for if not for shedding? And then there's bees. Millions of bees just pop up out of nowhere. Nobody seems to care. The bees! The bees! No, but Tony Todd does have a voice that melts me like butter. Also, if you're listening to this, Tony Todd, please hit, hit us up. up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so beginning of the story, it's actually a story of this student talking to our protagonist, Helen Lyle, uh, telling the story of Candyman, uh, featuring a surprise Ted Raimi. You know, when I first watched this movie, and I haven't watched this movie in many, many moons. And this um, was my first time. Yes, it was Theo's first watching. I'm glad we brought that up. Uh, so I've seen this movie. I'm quite familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. Maybe about five years ago was the last time I'd seen it. I met Tony Todd before I ever saw this movie. Wonderful, wonderful, beautiful man. He thought I was stalking him at a convention. We I was weren't. not. We're sorry, Tony. We love you. <laughs> but um, Helen's writing a paper on... Urban Legends, she kind of finds a special interest in Candyman, and her best friend, Bernadette, is working with her. Uh, the actress who plays Bernadette also plays another best friend in the form of Clarice Starling's best friend in Silence of the Lambs. Which, um, I'm, I haven't seen that one yet, so I can't really make too many comments on it, but, uh, being the best friend isn't always the best thing. No, no, not typically. She, she makes it out of Silence of the Lambs, spoiler alert. Uh, one thing I do want to point out is Helen's theme, which is, is played 
in, not incessantly, but it's played almost constantly throughout the course of the movie, was actually sampled by Ice Nine Kills for their Candyman song, Farewell to Flesh. Another thing, um, Helen's theme's actually really beautiful. Like, the way it has, it has the correct emotion and the correct intensity while also being able to work in multiple different parts of the movie when the intensity is lower. It's a really good piece of music that is able to convey so many different types of emotions. I mean, yeah, the score is very powerful and, you know, it makes sense because Philip Class has never done a dud. Moving on, uh, she walks in on her husband giving this um, lecture on urban legends. They kind of have a little tiff about it. Dude's clearly cheating with this much younger woman. I think Stacy was her name. Looks like Malibu Barbie. Yeah, I, I didn't particularly care for that girl. And her husband's a bit of a... Trevor's a prick. Yeah, Trevor is a prick. She gets this interesting candy man after jotting down, you know, the gist of his story. Uh, and these two cleaning ladies kind of fill her in on the whole thing. Uh, you know, Candyman is in Cabrini Green, which was an actual housing project uh, in Chicago until it was torn down in 2011. And they talk about how a woman named Ruthie Jean was killed there. And Helen actually winds up going to try to, like, look around and get more on where this urban legend came from. And in that scene and the scene where her and Bernadette are going there, you can really see what people were kind of scared of during that time. Yeah, because this movie came out in 1992, which was... I believe the same exact year as the LA riots, the Rodney King trials, all of that. So it, it does kind of have a cultural message. And I'm sure there are people who are way smarter than me who have talked about it. You know, I'm not really qualified to speak on the racial aspect of this movie, but it, it is um, something that is addressed in this movie. See, I don't think it's just a racial aspect though. It's a psychology aspect. It shows horror movies in general show what the people of their generation and what people at the time were really afraid of at that moment. And even if it wasn't, like, even if you're not making a race thing, it's still people were afraid of gangs. People were afraid of poverty. It's a very 90s thing to be afraid of. I do want to point out something that's very 90s about this movie. Helen is a goddamn chain smoker. Oh, yeah, and smoking was still allowed in school. She smokes Every goddamn where. She smokes in the school, she smokes in the bar, she smokes in the hospital, she smokes in the jail. If she doesn't have a cigarette, I think we would worry about her. So, so before they even get to Cabrini Green, you know, they're in Helen's apartment and they're talking about how her apartment used to be a project as well and how they have the same layout as Cabrini Green. And, she, you know, she's in this gentrified ass apartment, probably paying top dollar for that shit, like when it was a. F- $300 a month housing project not too long ago. She doesn't even want to mention to her friend Bernadette how much she paid for that apartment. No, Bernadette's got some sense. She's like, oh, let's go to Cabrini Green. And she's like, no, no fucking way. That's the hood. Why would you want to go there? And she's like, well, we'll do it for the paper. Listen, white women, white women. Uh, another thing I do want to point out, because as they're going to Cabrini Green, uh, there's this beautiful overhead shot that's tracking their car and i'm assuming a helicopter did it because they didn't have drones back then but big props to cinematographer anthony b richmond Uh, he did a fantastic job on this movie yeah this movie in general was just gorgeous 
the way that everything flowed, the way that the colors looked, the way that the lighting was able to be taken exactly. Like, that's one of the things I like about horror movies is, in general, most horror movies aren't made on a top market budget, yet they are gorgeous. They do the best with what they have, and that's basically been the way horror movies have been done for years. I mean, you know, there are some exceptions. You get some AAA movies that get, like, big Buku Bucks funding. I mean, It 2017 comes to mind. But for the most part, yeah, they got to work with a very limited budget and they always make it work. Well, that's because unlike most movies, I feel like horror movies in general have more of a soul to them. People who are working on them want to be there. They want to be doing this. They're not necessarily cash grabs. Yes. And everybody who did work on Candyman, when you address them or ask them about it, they only have good things to say. It seems like the entire cast and crew looks on this movie pretty fondly. I mean, I haven't exactly done a lot of research on this movie, but uh, Tony Todd seemed to really enjoy his time there. Uh, he's the only person who was in this movie that I know of. And as I said, I don't really watch a lot of interviews and stuff like that. No, it was a career-defining role for him, certainly. He once said in an interview that, like, the first three lines of his obituary are going to mention that he's the Candyman and that he's perfectly fine with that. So they get there, and Bernadette's fucking packing heat. She's got a taser, she's got pepper spray, she's got a nine. She's, like, ready to go to war <laughs> in this damn housing project. Well, she definitely knows what she's doing there. I mean, in the very beginning, you kind of see all these people outside the housing project kind of what looks to be causing trouble. So I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, those are actual gang members that lived in Cabrini Green. They, they were, so the exterior shots of Cabrini Green were on location and they kind of had to pay off those gang members not to cause trouble. And they actually kind of employed them to be extras in those movies or in this movie. While I appreciate the sentiment there of paying the people whose housing you're using, maybe not funding gangs. Well, it only works somewhat, too. Uh, by the end of the shoot, they had a few vehicles that had gotten shot up. Their generator had been vandalized. It wasn't a pretty time. Now, that being said, the interior shots were all done on a soundstage. Probably for safety reasons. Very much for safety reasons. All right. So um, one of the biggest things that I noticed, especially during that initial scene with the gang members and just the outside of Cabrini Green, was they kept mentioning... Not only did Helen mention it, I believe, once, and Bernadette as well, the gang members also mentioned that they look like the police. Yeah, yeah, they're screaming, 5-0, Which also kind of shows, again, what they were afraid of in that time, or what some people were afraid of. And I think it says a lot about, again, the 90s. Well, even Helen's like, it's okay, they think they're cop they think we're cops, they won't they won't mess with us. And you know, Helen's got some invincible white woman complex for she, real. She's a tourist in the projects. She thinks that she can't be hurt, which isn't the case. So they get to the apartment where Ruthie Jean was killed, uh, not before a dog jump scare. That dog I think has more jump scares than Candyman does. Definitely. Then again, I also think Helen has more jump scares than Candyman does. Helen is a jump-scaring prick. So they get to the bathroom. Helen's theory is proved right because while they're in Helen's apartment, she's like, "See, they're only uh, our apartments are only separated by this this cabinet." And she like kind of kicks in the medicine cabinet to the empty apartment adjacent to her. 
Which somebody's going to be pissed off about. Yeah, you know, there's going to be a realtor who has to tour that location, and they're going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> so she, you know, she opens up the cabinet and sees that there, there's been a hole dug, and she she crawls through, again, not before jump-scaring Bernadette, because she's a dick like that, but she crawls through, and she sees this huge mural of Candyman, and, like, the hole where the person who killed Ruthie Jean crawls through is his mouth. That's something else that you notice right off the rip with Cabrini Green is all of the amazing artwork. Now, I understand that the government wants us to tell you that graffiti's bad, but I think graffiti's beautiful. And there's also, before they get to Ruthie Jean's apartment, there's this amazing mural that says... Sweets for the sweet. Yeah, sweets for the sweet. And that was just a really cool piece. And throughout this movie if you really look at the graffiti in the background and the art in the background not even just the art that they like pan in on um you could see some really cool pieces yeah so she's checking out this whole area um she finds some candy with razor blades hidden inside she kind of snips her finger on that razor blades in the candy trope yes she snaps a fuck ton of pictures breaks her camera decides she's had enough and they go to leave uh, and that's when they meet Anne-Marie, who was the lady with the jump scare dog. Just a quick thing, she did not break her camera. It ran out of film. Oh, I thought she said she smashed it or something like that. That happens later on. Oh, okay. But yeah, they meet Anne-Marie and her jump scaring dog. She also immediately thinks they're cops. Um, when they mention that they're looking into the Ruthie Jean murder, uh, Anne-Marie invites her in. And that's where we meet ba- ba- uh, baby Anthony. Such a cute little baby. Adorable, adorable child. I love him. I would do anything for him. You know, Anne-Marie is almost immediately distrustful because, you know, white woman tourist in the projects automatically just assume she's up to no good or to look down on the residents there. But as she's going and telling them the story of Ruthie Jean, she mentions that she called 911 and they didn't take her seriously. And that speaks volumes about what actually happens in poverty-strucken areas. Well, yeah, it's not even that they didn't take her seriously. It's just that it's the hood. We're not sending any cops out there. Yeah. So it was, it's a sobering moment, in my opinion. Also is where they kind of introduced like this almost serial killer angle to the movie. Because back when they were still at Helen's apartment, they were talking about how these people had gotten into the apartment and all that kind of stuff. And so it brought in like, an almost serial killer aspect to it, talking about who the actual killer of Ruthie Jean was instead of the urban legend surrounding it. Yeah, because at this point, Helen isn't even entertaining the idea of the supernatural. Exactly. So it brings in that, oh, this is where this urban legend came from, which, of course, later on, we learn more about. So they leave Anne-Marie's apartment, and that's when we get our exposition scene with Professor Exposition. Helen's kind of being a dick about the whole thing. She's like, oh yeah, well, we're going to bury you with our Candyman paper. And he's like, well, bitch, I wrote a Candyman paper 10 years ago. See, I came across a very different, like, feeling in that. I guess that's also probably a gender thing. But to me, it seemed like he was kind of pompous about all of it. And he was kind of rude to her about it and looking down on her. And she snapped back. Oh, no, there's no doubt he's pompous, but he was pompous before even talking about the paper. He just has that air of arrogance about him. 
So I think that's more why she snapped back on that. I don't think that she was being necessarily rude. He's probably talked down to her like that before. It's likely. So yeah, it's it's Helen, the professor, uh, Purcell, I think his name was, Bernadette, and Trevor the Prick. They're at a very fancy-looking restaurant, and they're all chain-smoking. They are all just lighting up like chimneys. The whole restaurant looks like a dive bar rather than an upscale joint. I, I don't know. I was like around 10 or 11 years old when they officially banned smoking indoors in America. So I, I was there for some of that, but goddamn, like... 1992 was different, man. 1992 was definitely a lot different, and the smoking indoors is really a big thing. That, and they also showed what kind of cigarette she was smoking. Um, I don't remember what brand it was now. Probably Marlboro or Lucky Strike. Think, Hollywood loves Lucky Strike. I think it was Mulby. Never heard of them. They were a 90s brand. I think my dad smoked them. So... They're talking about, you know, the origins of Candyman. It's it's heavy-duty exposition time. So, Professor Pompous starts talking about uh, how Candyman was the son of a slave, freed slave, who started getting his wealth through uh, a machine that manufactured shoes. Uh, and Candyman was actually a very gifted painter. Now, they don't mention this in the first movie, but Candyman's name when he was alive was Daniel Robitaille. Uh, they mentioned that in the second one. The second one's an alright sequel. It doesn't even hold a candle to the original Candyman. But if you want to watch it, it's a fun one. So this wealthy landowner commissions Candyman to paint a portrait of his daughter. And the two fall in love. Uh, it's kind of a secretive affair. Uh, until the daughter falls pregnant with Candyman's child. The landowner doesn't like that one bit. He sicks a mob on Candyman. They chop off his painting hand, replace it with a hook. They start beating him mercilessly. There's an apiary nearby, so they steal the honeycomb from the hives and slather Candyman with this honey, and he's stung to death by these bees. Which is a very metal way to die. It's metal, but it's also very brutal and incredibly depressing, especially when you watch the scene in the sequel. I feel like you could splice that flashback scene into the original and it would actually add a bit more into the movie getting to see what actually happened to him. It would have been cool to actually get to see more of Candyman's story in this one, but I also understand why they didn't. The director probably felt that less was more in this situation. It gave Candyman a error of mystery about him. Especially because the camera is very fixated on Helen. She almost looks like a film noir character at this point, and she's in this trance-like state. And if it seems like she is actually in a trance-like state, uh, it's because she was. So the director had an actual hypnotist come on set and put Virginia Madsen under while these particular scenes were being shot. So when Candyman appears to her, when people are talking about in detail uh, about Candyman, she's actually being hypnotized for these scenes. That's a really cool fun fact right there. Uh, it went on for quite some time uh, until there was one point where Virginia Madsen couldn't come out of it for a while. Oh. And she's like, okay, Bernard, no, we're, we're not we're not doing this anymore. You're Don't look at me like that. You're not putting me under again. It's not happening. Uh, that would be my response to that. I don't want to be under. Oh, yeah. And they also um, burn his body after 
it's all said and done, and his ashes kind of just scatter over where Cabrini Green will be built in the future. So that was definitely a cooler thing to know about. That's why Candyman is such a big player in Cabrini Green and why his urban legend is really tied to that location. An area and people. So she goes back to the projects by herself this time. Uh, No Bernadette strapped to the nines. She goes to go see Anne-Marie, but this little boy named Jake lets her know, yeah, no, she ain't there. So she sits down with Jake, starts asking him about the Candyman, and he does not want to talk about him. He's scared shitless of the Candyman. And even he points out, like, lady, what 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 are you doing here? This is the hood. Go. You're gonna get yourself hurt. Which is very funny when a small child can tell you that you're being an idiot. So she starts asking him about Candyman. He's like, no, I, I can't tell you anything about him because he's going to get me if I if I squeal. Doesn't she, like, manipulate him into talking about it? A little bit. A little bit. So she tells him, well, nobody's going to know you told me, so just bring me to where you think Candyman is. And he brings her down to this public restroom. Uh, and he starts telling her this story about how this little boy was killed and, and uh, well, castrated by the Candyman. In this scene where he's telling her about it, she makes the very intelligent decision to actually go into a men's public bathroom in the middle of Chicago. A plus for logical thinking there. Invincible white woman complex. Oh, one more thing I forgot to mention. Uh, On their way to this public restroom, there's this huge bonfire that's being built. And, you know, she asks about, like, oh, are you guys building a bonfire? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's for the block party we're going to be having. Uh, That bonfire is important. Check out his bonfire. Comes back later in the movie. But if you look in this scene, you once again see a lot of graffiti, um, gross public bathroom trope. Poop writing on the walls. Sweets for the sweet. A lot less pretty this time because it's written in poop now. Yeah. So she starts going down all these stalls. She finds the stall that the little boy was supposedly killed in. And there's a bunch of bees in the toilet. And she like just kicks the seat down. And you hear a flushing sound effect. So I'm like, did she just flush all these bees? That's horrible. That is not environmentally friendly. So in real life, the bees were actually treated super well on the set of things. Whenever there were bees on actors, uh, they used a little bee vacuum to suck them up, and the bees weren't hurt by this. It was actually a professional beekeeper or entomologist or something like that who was watching over these bees and raising them specifically to be in the movie. These bees were treated very well. Yes, uh, ASPCA was on site as well. I love the bees. So it's about this time in the movie where Great Value Candyman rolls in. This is the Candyman you get when you order him off Wish. He has just like a hook in his hand. He has a hook in his hand and he's rolling with a crew. All of who are like way shorter than him as well. And he just goes up to Helen and he's like, I heard you're looking for the Candyman, bitch. And he just knocks her out, but doesn't kill her for reasons. He like pistol whips her. He pistol whips her with the hook. hook. With the hook. It's definitely a funny kind of you don't think that that's what Candyman would do. Oh, she's all fucked up too. He leaves, like I said, he doesn't kill her for reasons. 
Uh, Jake runs in, finds her. I'm guessing he calls the cops because the next thing that happens is they cut to a scene of a police lineup and <laughs> they're just each saying, heard you're looking for the Candyman, bitch. And I think it's actually the funniest part in a movie that's not really supposed to be funny. It did get a chuckle out of me. Yeah, it's definitely a funny part, as well as the way each one of the people saying it looks so different, and their voices all sound so different, which I guess get is just a part of, like, a lineup, but it was, it was hilarious. So, Helen picked Wish Candyman out of a police lineup. The, you know, they take him away, he's arrested. He's charged with the murder of the little boy and Ruthie Jean. Yeah, so... At this point, you know, she's explaining to Jake, Candyman's not real. It's just a, this guy was using Candyman's story to scare people and to get away with committing crimes. And at that point, Jake starts not believing in Candyman. And because this fake Candyman has been captured, they the residents at Cabrini Green also stop believing in him because they're like, oh, it was just this fake or this big phony. So Bernadette shows up. Uh, I'm guessing enough time has passed that Helen's face is healed because she had this huge shiner for, like, the entire left side of her face, and it's just gone now. Like, her eye was closed. It was swole shut. Good effects. I I didn't take down the effects artist. But I did. The makeup effects artist's name was Bob Helen. Bob Helen. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, good on him because there's a lot of good effects in this movie. So, uh, Helen also addresses uh, missing white woman syndrome. She makes this comment where she's like, yeah, you know, all these uh, black people have been getting killed for years by the Candyman, air quotes, and, you know, nobody gave a shit, but as soon as one white woman goes missing, suddenly the, the National Guard, the FBI, the CIA, they're all here looking. Which is another race poverty type thing. You know, she's not a white woman from the projects, even. She's... A white woman who's doing well off for herself, whose husband is a professor. So at this point, Bernadette informs Helen that they were able to save some of the pictures from her camera. Um, Which had gotten smashed when the dude hit her in the face. Oh, okay, so that's when that happened. Okay, you're paying closer attention than I was. So one thing we forgot to mention a little early on was the fact that these two Moronicuses, or, well, just Helen, really, Bernadette has some sense in her and chickens out, summons Candyman. So they say his name five times in the mirror, or Helen does, Bernadette only does it four times, and, you know, he doesn't instantly show up to kill them. So while Bernadette hands her these photos, she also tells her the good news that they're going to sign her since she made the local news taking down the air quotes Candyman. Great value Candyman. Target Candyman. Dollar store Candyman. Hey, don't be rude to Target. <laughs> but in this garage scene, we also get our first official sight of Candyman at 44 minutes and 20 seconds into the movie. More than halfway through the movie, we get our first honest-to-God appearance of Candyman. And And not just Tony Todd's amazing voice. It was very much worth the wait. It is a slow-burn movie through and through, but it works so well. Beautiful first appearance, beautiful man. Absolutely. Just uh, amazing. So he approaches her with this almost sing-song voice, you know, Helen, Helen. 
And she's enamored with him as well. Because, I mean, one, it's Tony Todd, but, you know, you don't know that in the context of the universe. He's just this beautiful human being wearing this beautiful fur coat and a not-so-beautiful hook. I mean, it might be beautiful depending on who you are. If you're Clive Barker, you probably find it very attractive. Well, also, in that scene, you couldn't see the hook. Oh, no, he flashes that. He whips that bitch right out. Yeah, but in the very beginning, when she's first enamored with him, um, you don't see the hook. And when she's enamored, this is another scene where she's under the effects of hypnosis, and it shows very much. But Candyman goes into his whole... Be my victim. Be my victim. And it's really cool when he goes into his whole monologue in that moment, because his monologue is almost like poetry. It's borderline Shakespearean. Yeah, it has, like, the perfect thespian edge to it. It has the perfect cadence of speech for the moment. It adds so much to that moment, and then the music that they have playing on the background also adds to that. When it comes to horror movies, you don't typically get antagonists with such gravitas. I mean, you sometimes get it, you know, with Pinhead and Hellraiser, and it was a bit more common in the 50s and 60s, especially with Vincent Price characters. But this was pre-Scream 90s horror, so horror had kind of hit a lull. It was in, like, a limbo, and nobody really knew what to do with it. And then Candyman comes along, and you're like, oh, this this villain is eloquent, and he's capable of intelligent thought and discussion. He's not a masked, mindless killer. It's not just stabby, stabby blood. Yes. So Helen passes out now. Um, she just faints at the sight of Candyman, which, fair, me too. Yeah. And she wakes up in, in a mysterious apartment. So she wakes up in this apartment covered in blood. Not her, she's fine. But she hears this screaming. She leaves the bathroom and finds a dead dog. Yes, very nice, decapitated. Thank you for that one. I didn't see that part. Yep, Theo closed their eyes because I warmed them. Uh, dog dead, details later. Also, it's kind of important to mention that when she wakes up on the bathroom floor in this strange apartment, there's a meat cleaver next to her. Which she stupidly picks up. Like, there was no reason to grab the meat cleaver, but she did. She very, very stupidly picks it up. So she goes out to see that this is Anne Marie's apartment, and baby Anthony's crib is just coated in blood. Baby Anthony is missing. Anne Marie immediately just thinks it's her because she's covered in blood and holding a goddamn meat cleaver. So she starts going after her. A scuffle ensues. Helen accidentally injures Anne-Marie with the meat cleaver and gets the better of her. And it's right then and there that Chicago PD busts down the door. Look, they actually care. Yeah, they showed up this time. And Helen is looking hella sus. Which kind of brings me to another psychology aspect that you see is that to Anne-Marie, Helen is the villain. She was her friend for a moment and now she's back to just being the white tourist woman where she doesn't belong. Causing trouble. Causing trouble for her and heartache. So there's also this kind of extended strip scene. And the only reason I'm addressing it is because the lady cop who's directing Helen to strip down to her skivvies is played by Rusty Schwimmer. You might know her as Joey from Friday the 13th Part 9, the diner owner, 
with the foul mouth who, you know, hates the baby at first and then loves the baby and tries to square up with Jason to her credit. Fails horribly. Her entire family gets goddamn decimated. But hey, you tried, Gold Star. So also during the scene, you kind of see where the cops are like, you did it. You did this. This wasn't somebody else. Helen's sitting there trying to explain herself and she continuously tries to explain while the cops are asking her if she understands her rights and the cops are getting angrier and angrier and then she asks to make a phone call yep trevor the prick she calls trevor the prick of all people not bernadette trevor the prick who's probably out getting his dick wet at 3 a.m and doesn't answer the phone dick um so she's in jail and she's still chain smoking she's just cigarette after cigarette in this jail cell which I don't think they allowed even back then. I swear lung cancer is going to get this one before Candyman can. I will tell you right now, they probably did allow it. Probably. Because you have to think that that's how they made their money. You could probably smoke at a fucking funeral in 1992. That would be one of the places that I think you should be able to smoke. <laughs> so Trevor shows up the next morning, lying prick that he is, says he was sleeping. There's, there's like a flash cut to their bedroom and he's nowhere to be found. It's the cheating white husband trope. So he bails her out. They start talking about their defense. They say, oh, well, they haven't charged you because they think they're going to find Anthony's body. Which, obviously not, because it jumps to Candyman watching over baby Anthony. There's also a very obvious Budweiser ad placement. King of beers, baby. King of beers. So Helen lights up again. Cracks open the king of beers, and she starts going through the slideshow of all her pictures. At one point, she actually sees Candyman. Yes. In one of those photos. In the mirror, when she took a picture of the mirror of the medicine cabinet. And at that point, Candyman shows up in her apartment. Yes. Not before jump scaring the hell out of her. So... She takes a bath, dries off, stupidly approaches her mirror... And it's at that point that Candyman's hook arm just pops out of the mirror. And Tony Todd actually scared the ever-loving shit out of Virginia Madsen for this take. Uh, Bernard Rose did not tell her that this was going to happen. Tony Todd did not want to do it at first because he knew it was going to scare the ever-loving hell out of her. And Bernard convinced him to do it somehow anyway. And after that take was done, he apologized profusely to her. Uh, Virginia forgave Tony, never forgave Bernard. I mean, that would scare the hell out of me, too. One, that hook does not look very, uh, safe. And even though you know it's Hollywood and it's fake, I don't know how fake that hook really was. It was 1992, so I'd say there's, like, a 60-40 chance of it being real. Yeah, see? I'd be scared. So, Candyman... Grabs hold of her with his hook, just kind of like grazes the back of her head, saying some simultaneously seductive and terrifying things. And even when he's saying some very scary things like, I'll gut you from your groin to your gullet, he's still incredibly sexy saying it. Be with me. Um, so while this is all happening, Bernadette shows up to visit Helen, you know, cheer up. She's got flowers and all that. And she hears Helen calling from inside the apartment. And she runs in thinking she's in danger. Candyman gets her. It's upsetting. Because she's the only person in this movie with any damn sense. And Candyman gets her anyway. 
And Helen was trying to warn her not to come in. Okay, so that maybe was the one time she was lacking any sense. I would say more fearlessness than lacking sense. Her friend's in danger. She's going to go help. Exactly. She was very brave. We stand Bernadette here. Trevor the Prick walks in, finds Helen holding a knife and Bernadette's dead body. Cops are swarming the joint at this point. They're drugging her up. Trevor's with her until they take her in to, I'm guessing, a mental institution. Well, no, it, it is a mental institution. Mm-hmm. He just vanishes at that point. He don't give a crap no more. She sees Candyman once again while she's all strapped down in this hospital bed. Um, and she starts screaming, murderer, murderer. And in that moment, you don't really know if it's her talking about herself or Candyman, like, it's to the outside world who don't see Candyman that we saw, it seems like she's just insane. Yeah, because at this point, Candyman just begins to gaslight the hell out of Helen. You know, putting the knife in her hand, making her think that she did it. And there is some contention among fans of the movie as to whether or not she was doing it and Candyman was possessing her or Candyman was the one actually committing these murders and he's framing Helen. I believe the latter because a lot of these murders Helen actually just could not have done. Yeah, it would not have made sense for Helen to be able to do them. Um, And also this scene in the mental institution kind of shows that like Helen's having a bit of a psychotic break and to me it seems like she's having a psychotic break due to the fact that of her husband's infidelity which is getting clearer and clearer that she knows about oh yeah there's no way she doesn't know about it she even calls him out on it and he's like who me no never floating candy man like 90 degree planking over Helen very bad at flirting proceeds to gaslight her some more to the point where she's freaking the hell out and they have to drug her. This is a fairly toxic relationship. Still better than her relationship with Trevor. Yep. <laughs> Gratuitous B jump cut. And then we see that Candyman still has baby Anthony and he is feeding him honey. Which is sweet, but probably should not be feeding an infant honey. I don't think that's good for them. Disclaimer here, please do not feed your infants honey. We are not responsible for any medical problems that that causes. Yes, the vengeful ghost with a hook for a hand isn't exactly a good example to live by. That being said, Candyman do like babies. He does like the baby. So back to what I was saying with the psychotic break that you kind of see Helen going through at this point. I think it also speaks to the 90s epidemic of mental health that was really going on during that time where being placed in a mental institution or having to seek help for your mental health was really looked down upon and it was something that a lot of people were terrified of was having a mental breakdown. Yeah, this took place a couple of decades after there was a mental health reform, which I use the term reform loosely because all they really did was shut down the asylums in the 70s and 80s. And all that really did was remove what little mental health care there was in this country entirely. So for a really long time, any mental health problems were swept under the rug. All of those uh, residents of the asylum became homeless, and they just kind of ignored the problem for a very long time. 
And this movie kind of speaks on that in little ways, much like it does poverty, even though poverty seems to be a bigger factor in the movie than mental health. Yeah, the, the poverty thing isn't even subtext, that's just text. So is the infidelity thing. Yes, the infidelity ceases to be subtext and becomes text very shortly. She meets the director of the institution. Uh, he sits her down and tells her, you, you realize you've been here for a month, right? Which she did not. Uh, to her, only a, a night had passed. And she's trying to explain to him, like, listen, I could not have committed these murders. I just simply don't have it in me. And she says, well, I'll prove it to you. And she looks into the mirror and says his name five times, summons the Candyman. And almost immediately, we get the best kill in the film, because Candyman just pops up and just... Hook straight through the back of this dude. Impales him from the groin to the gullet, just like he promised. And then makes the coolest exit sequence I have seen yet in a horror film. Oh, he just yeets himself out that window, but not before freeing Helen to make her look even more suspicious. Because if this guy was just gutted while she's still restrained, then she has some credibility. So he has to make sure she has none. But still, best exit sequence I've seen in a horror film yet. Awesome. Just the cinematography there was spot on a plus chef's kiss no for real he just ascends like even if you don't watch this whole movie go watch that one scene on youtube because it's really well done we should make a video of him doing that and just do that <laughs> so helen starts solid snaking her way out of the institution because she realizes she's fucked at this point and if the police guards who were there were just a little bit smarter and looked up at any point in time all would have been lost so she makes it to another room she starts banging on this window and this very nice nurse who does not want her to fall to her death opens up the window and helen repays her by beating her face in and taking her clothes all while the patient in that bed is like what oh yeah the fuck i don't know if he's catatonic or he just literally can't believe the shit he's seeing but he looks shook i mean wouldn't you be <laughs> so she escapes stormtrooper style dresses up as the nurse makes her way over to her old apartment where she finds trevor's new squeeze less than a month he already moves this bitch in i can't believe the cojones on this dude well actually i can because he's just very blatantly cheating on helen and he's like no i'm not can we also talk about the fact that his little girlfriend decided to paint Helen's very beautifully decorated 90s house like Barbie doll Malibu pink. Oh, she goes like flamingo pink with it. It's hideous. It's, it's disgusting. So, it's so hideous that even Helen comments on it. So she goes ape shit. Well, a kind of a calm, reserved ape shit. She goes ape fart. <laughs> you know when every when you get so angry that you get quiet and you start thinking about whether or not going to jail is really worth it. That so, was that moment. Stacy just immediately starts sobbing. Trevor shits his pants. She realizes that there's nothing left for her. That Candyman basically took everything. Which is actually something I wanted to talk about because it was another aspect of this movie that kind of plays into the race story that they were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's... A white woman loses everything for trying to disprove African-American legend. So it's, she was trying to take something away from them that wasn't 
hers to take away. And her entire life wound up getting screwed because of it. That's another thing that Candyman mentions to her. Because his power stems from his congregation and his congregation's belief in him, and she messed with that. So now she has to die so people believe in him again. It's also at this point, isn't it, that he mentions that it's either her or the baby? Yes, he does say it's her or the baby. So she has to now make the choice of, is she going to save herself, which really wouldn't be saving herself if you look at it, or is she going to save baby Anthony? She makes the obvious choice. She heads right over to Cabrini Green. She goes to the Ruthie Jean apartment, goes behind that, grabs a hook that's hanging there. So, you know, on my first viewing, I thought, okay, so she's just going to submit herself to Candyman. Why'd she wait so long? I would have done it the first time he said, be my victim. He would not have had to say anything. No, he, he would not have to ask me twice. He would not have to ask me twice at all. He wouldn't even have to ask me once. I would have just been over there like, what can I do for you? Hi, beautiful. Yeah. So she grabs this hook and finds Candyman sleeping, which I didn't realize ghosts needed to sleep, but whatever. Oh, she also finds a mural of Candyman's lynching. Which is a strange thing to just have a mural of. So she finds him sleeping and... You, you can't really tell what she's thinking at the moment. Like, you can't tell if she wants to kiss him or kill him. But she chooses the later. I would have chosen the first one. Just gets him in the neck with the hook. But because he's a ghost, it doesn't really matter too much. But that scene, when, she pull, when he pulls the hook out of his neck. Oh, that shot. It was a very good effect. Like The effect is good. Again, the lighting, the cinematography. It's such a subtle effect too, but it looks so good and convincing because like, it's just a little spur. It's just like a... It's amazing. Beautiful. It left an impression on me. Enough that I left a note about it. So from here, she just decides to submit to Candyman. And that kind of brings me to another like psychology aspect of this in the psychology of women in the 90s, where you were caught in this really strange midground between women having a lot of rights. They went to work, they did everything that they needed to do and stuff like that, yet they were still looked down upon by most men and by society in general. And for her to have to submit to Candyman was just another aspect of that. The choice of wording in the script really kind of anchors that one. They make a clear use of the word submit. After the botched hooking, uh, she's she submits to Candyman and they begin this little spinning scene. And this scene was actually much longer, two minutes longer to be precise. Um, they have like a dance and Helen and Candyman kiss. And they cut this scene due to the fear of backlash from an interracial romance. This from a movie that's not really shying away from the racial themes. Or the themes of infidelity. And in 1992. So this wasn't like, you know, the late 60s when Spock and Uhura kissed. It was like groundbreaking and people were clutching their pearls and men were crying and women were gnashing their teeth and babies were having babies and dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. This was 1992. A interracial kiss wasn't really a huge thing at the time, but they cut it. That's a very strange thing for them to cut. Meanwhile, they left everything else. Yeah, it was a very weird choice. It was 
clear evidence of studio interference, though. So after that scene's done, Candyman lays Helen down on this, like, altar. It's the same altar that he was sleeping on. And this is when the bee scene happens. The bees! The bees! So there are so many bees. I think they said something like 24,000 bees were used for this scene. And Candyman's body is covered in bees. He opens up his coat and there's this gnarly prosthetic where you just see his innards, his rib cage, his guts, his heart, his lungs. And, and bees. And the bees. He's just coated in these bees. And Helen's coated in these bees. And Candyman, like, French kisses these bees into her mouth. Which that scene got to stay, but whatever. I'm not, I'm not the producer. So they actually used juvenile bees, baby bees. Uh, they were raised on the studio lot, less than 24 hours old. Reason they did this was because juvenile bees don't have fully developed stingers, which makes them less likely to try and sting, which was good because Virginia Madsen was actually incredibly allergic to bee venom. Thankfully, she did not get stung once. Tony Todd, on the other hand, got stung quite a few times. And believe it or not, not because of the ones in his mouth, which they used a prosthetic dental dam to keep them from going down his throat. He got stung on the chest because for some reason the bees did not really appreciate the chest prosthetic, so he got stung a few times there. And Tony Todd, being the clever man he was, had a clause in his contract that said he would be paid $1,000 per bee sting. And I think, I don't remember the exact number, but over the course of the three Candyman movies, the man was paid out $12,000 for bee stings. That's a lot of stings. Also, why would you have a woman who is allergic to bee stings as your main actress in a movie that uses a lot of bees? Listen, that's probably one of the less reckless things that Hollywood has done. I understand, but it's still reckless. It is reckless, but here we are. So that brings us to the next scene, in which Helen wakes up. Yes, she wakes up. She sees uh, graffiti written on the walls that says, It was always you, Helen. And a portrait of Candyman's lover from when he was still alive. And it looks strikingly similar to Helen. So they don't say it outright, but this basically all but confirms that Helen is the reincarnated soul of Candyman's lover. Which kind of shows why he was so obsessed with her. So Helen hears baby Anthony crying from the bonfire. Remember that? Told you it'd be important. And she grabs one of Candyman's hooks. Well, not one of his hooks, but one of the hooks that's just around. So she grabs one of his hooks and sets out to the bonfire. And she starts climbing it to go save the baby. And while she's doing this, Jake looks out the window from his apartment and sees a hook descending into the bonfire, which, you know, he takes to be Candyman. So he leads this mob out to the bonfire to burn it and kill Candyman once and for all. Which is a really cool, like, thought process, even though he did lie about that block party. He did lie about that block party. That never happened. That bonfire was sitting there for a whole ass month. I'm wondering if they were just procrastinating it or, like, nobody's schedules matched up. I get it. I'm a DM. I know about shitty schedules. I feel your pain residence at Cabrini Green. I don't think it was ever meant for a block party, my love. No, he said it was for a party. Yeah, he did say it was for a party, but then when they did it, they mentioned the Candyman's here. Let's go light him up. I'm thinking that was always meant for whenever the Candyman showed up. I think they just had really shitty schedules. 
Let's agree to disagree. Fine. So Helen's climbing through this bonfire. She grabs Anthony, and Candyman grabs her. He's like, Whoa, it's me! And he grabs her. Meanwhile, they're pouring gasoline and lighting fire to this bonfire. Yeah, so Candyman's whole plan is, you know, he wants a family to live forever with him. So he's going to take Helen and Anthony, which Helen only halfway consented. She was coerced. Anthony can't. Kind of fucked up, Candyman. Yeah, I thought you liked the baby, Candyman. He does like the baby. That's why he wants the baby dead. That's not a good reason. (laughs) Now, with this whole thing, there is some mob parallels. So a mob killed Candyman the first time, and now a mob is trying to kill Candyman a second time. You also see in this scene where Candyman is, like, holding Helen back from getting out of this fire with baby Anthony, Helen actually makes eye contact with Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie. And sits there and is like, no, I have to give her back her baby. Yeah, because there's almost a point in time where she just accepts it. She's like, this is this is what I want. This is how it's going to go down. And then she spots Anne-Marie in the crowd and she grabs this burning bedpost and just sticks Candyman in his open torso with it, which can't feel nice at all. He deserved it. Kind of, yeah. He deserved that one. Don't so- try to kill the baby. She starts making his escape, her escape. She starts making her escape and gets pinned down by a falling beam and she gets lit on fire. But she manages to gather up enough strength to get the beam off her and get Anthony out. And they start putting her out. She hands Anthony to Anne-Marie. And there's some pretty good makeup effects, burned makeup effects. She's looking like Anakin Skywalker after a battle on Mustafar. That was a good one. No, but the effects there were really cool. I also really liked how they had her hair on fire and her clothes on fire. And it wasn't just like an immediate like, oh, she crawls out of the fire already burned. No, they showed her burning. Yes, there's some very good fire stunts in this scene. Because you have Candyman on fire. He's screaming for Helen not to leave. You have Helen on fire. By the time all this is done, you actually see Candyman's charred skeleton or Jake at least sees it. So I'm not sure what that means for the movie, whether Candyman was corporeal this whole time or what, or because Jake believes in him, he can see him. Uh, It's a little unclear in that, but you do see Candyman's burned body at the end of that. Which is just really neat to see. Um, I also, I kind of see it as because Helen submitted to him, it brought back a bit of his humanity, which is why I think you're able to see his burned skeleton could be maybe the sequels flesh out the rules a little more flesh out maybe the sequels flesh out the rules a little bit more but i only watched them ever once and i honestly don't ever care to watch Candyman 3 again well you're probably gonna have to i'm probably gonna have to uh we also get a bee inferno fire bees there's like this big explosion and all these fire bees take off into the sky and it's really rad looking fire bees definitely a cool band name. Firebees. That's like prog rock, I think. Yeah. So Helen ends up dying from her wounds. And Prick Trevor brings his new girlfriend to his dead wife's funeral if he couldn't get any lower. And at that point, the residents of Cabrini Green come to Helen's funeral. Yes, they come to pay their respects because she has a congregation now. 
she has what Candyman had. And interesting to note that Jake is dressed like a little bitty Candyman in this scene. He also drops Candyman's hook. His actual hook, not the fake hook that you've been seeing throughout the movie, because this hook has like nails in it and stuff, and it's quite clearly Candyman's hook. He drops Candyman's hook into Helen's grave. So I kind of take that as Candyman did get what he wanted. They are together now. Undying love. They are together again. So you kind of have this prologue scene with Trevor the Prick and his new girlfriend. And they get into a little argument because Trevor, I think, is a mixture of already bored with his new girlfriend and regretting his life choices that lost him Helen. Which he should because Helen might have been an idiot, but she was a pretty good wife. She just thought she was invincible. She was not. There's a whole hour and a half long movie about it. Well, that's just most white women. (laughs) I can say that. I'm a white woman. He starts saying her name in her mirror. And he does say it five times. It's, It's difficult to hear it the first time, but he says it five times. And it's at this point that we find out that Helen has also become a vengeful ghost. And that Trevor has accidentally just summoned her. And... She takes him out with that hook. He finally gets what's coming to him. I hated this guy the whole movie. He was the real villain of this movie, was was Trevor the Prick. And seizure warning for this one. Good God, seizure warning. It looks like an early 2000s music video for this scene. Yeah, um, they definitely should have some type of warning on this movie for this scene in particular so that nobody gets hurt. So, new girlfriend hears the commotion. She comes in, convenient knife in her hand, and she starts screaming. Roll credits. I'm pretty sure she's getting blamed for that. And the cycle starts all over again. We also did forget to mention that before that little prologue scene, there is another scene where you see a new piece of graffiti. That is Helen. Yes, that actually happens during the credits. Does it? Yes, so it's a slow zoom on Helen, and she's on fire, and she looks almost saintly. But it it goes to show that she has a congregation, and people who believe in her, and people who respect her, love her, and fear her. So she basically has the same power that Candyman did. Altogether, this movie was just a lot. It was intense for such a slow burn film. I loved everything about this movie. It's one of my favorites. You know, I don't like picking a favorite horror movie because, like, you might as well be asking me to pick my favorite child. But it is very, very high up there. But I already know who your favorite child is. It's Michael. Oh, it's Ava. Yeah, it is Ava. Did you just say Michael Myers was your favorite kid over our cat? Well, I thought you were asking me to pick my favorite movie. Well, yeah, I also know that, but Ava's mad at you now. Yeah, she's sulking. Look what you did. So, yeah, final thoughts? So, my final thoughts are one 10 out of 10 movie. Amazing movie. Amazing cinematography. The effects were great. Everything was just spot on. And there were titties. So I don't have to deduct any points. Yes, you did get your titties. I did. Also, can now that we're talking about the titty aspect, can we just talk about for a second how much you could see Stacy's nipples through that shirt? That was very much intentional. I didn't appreciate it. 
to the point when they when you when they show that scene on YouTube, they actually have to blur her nips out because like they bleed through so bad. It's it's not that wasn't a great portion, but this movie had a little bit of everything sprinkled in. That was what the '90s horror is mostly about. It had the infidelity. It had generational trauma. It had poverty and race and mental illness and it just had all these things that were very very 90s it was by far my favorite pre-scream 90s horror movie which you know it's kind of slim pickings there but the message is still there it it's my favorite pre-scream because it's before scream came out before the meta commentary before the tongue-in-cheek humor and it really thrives for that. I feel like had Candyman come out post-Scream, we would have gotten a very different movie. I think that this movie just, it hits all the right notes for not only a horror film, but just for a film in general. I was not bored once throughout this entire movie. Not once during this movie did I want to pick up my phone and scroll Instagram, which is a saying that you like that I believe you stole from Joe Bob Briggs. The worst offense a movie can have is being boring. That's the only crime a movie could commit in my mind. Joe Bob Briggs taught me that when I was eight years old, and that's been my rule to live by ever since. I'm pretty sure if I were to stop and watch Morbius, I'd enjoy it because it at least captured my attention. So now that we've kind of set our pieces, let's go over some uh, counts, shall we? Yes, of course. So, uh, titty counter. There are three times where you will see titties. Um, one of them, you don't actually see the titties, but you see enough of the nip that I think it counts. It satisfies. Uh, death count is five. There are five different people that you see get killed. Now, that is not mentioning the people who were murdered off screen. We don't count them. They don't exist. Um, jump scares. There are three that I counted. I might have missed one or two. And only one of them was Candyman. Yeah. So that's definitely a uh, a strange. So you've got hook foo, bee foo, open window foo, jump scare dog foo. Altogether, just amazing movie. Definitely a very good movie to start me off with. I enjoyed this one. It is one that I haven't seen, and I really, really enjoyed it. I'm actually really excited to see the sequels, even if. Ezra says the third one's not great. I actually would like to see the requel. Um, I have not seen that one, and I'm pretty sure it ignores Candyman 2 and 3. Well, I am also excited to see that. I'm excited anytime I get to see Tony Todd on screen. Beautiful man. Wonderful man. He's got a pretty extensive filmography, so it's not like you just have to look for him in Candyman. Yes, but his voice as Candyman is... It is. It is. Um, We actually got to meet tony todd at a convention what was it a year ago two years ago now 2019 huh holy heck i'm old yep right before covid came and attacked ruined everything yeah but we got to meet him and it was a really fun time um we did wind up running into him quite a few times during that convention when we weren't like meaning to and i'm pretty sure he thought we were stalking him not really he he wouldn't have tried to get us into the party if he legitimately thought we were stalking him. That is true. He did invite us to the VIP party. 
but unfortunately I had work the next morning. It was a two hour drive home. Looking back, I should have just called out because how many times do you get the opportunity to party with Candyman? Exactly zero. And I, I looked that gift horse right in the mouth and it bit me. But again, Tony Todd, you ever want to hang out again? Hit us up. <laughs> so, um, social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under Green Sticker Club or Green Sticker Club Podcast. We have an online Etsy shop that's Graveyard Shift Creations on Facebook and Instagram and Graveyard Shift Gifts on Etsy. Uh, my own personal Instagram and TikTok are going to be Ezra Terrestrial. And once I get my Instagram kind of up and going correctly, I will give you that information. And uh, once again, send us any comments, requests, um, words of encouragement. Those are appreciated as well to greenstickerclub at gmail.com. And tell Ezra what movie you want to see next. This way I don't have to sit through that again. I'm horribly indecisive. We know. Until then. Stay spooky. Bye-bye.